Let me just start off right out the bat with a hardcore, heavy question. If you knew for certain that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that the resurrection was true, that Jesus rose bodily, physically from the dead after having been dead for uh, on the third day, three days, would there be anything in your life, what are some ways that you might live your life differently than you're living now? I mean, if you're just honest with yourself. If you knew for certain that Jesus really did rise from the dead, are there any ways that you would live your life differently than how you're living your life now? I asked that question to guys in a Bible study I led Friday and all kinds of different answers. One guy said, well, I I would worry about way less. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, that would mean the whole thing is true, that, that Jesus really does love me. He really is in control, that that I don't have to worry that he's got my future in his hands and it's all going to be a good story. I can trust him. I would trust him about all these things. Another guy said, you know, to be honest, I think I am certain. But I get up and I go to work and I go about my day and I just get distracted by all these other things and I just forget about it. Another guy said, I would do whatever it takes to make it a priority in my life to make sure I was really in the kingdom of God. That would be my number one thing, number one purpose. That question, if you were certain that Jesus rose from the dead, what are some ways that your life might look differently is at the forefront of the story of Acts. It's kind of the question that pops out throughout the story of Acts. We're beginning today our new sermon series, Belonging to a Mission. It's on the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. You were handed, if you were offered at least. If you're like me, you don't take anything anybody offers you. But uh, when you were coming in, you were offered uh, one of these books. And it really is a great way for us as a church sort of to do a Bible study together. It's a way for you to spend time five days the week before Sunday going through the chapter we're going to preach on. And there's some more specific questions in this version. Uh, it's a little thicker that's for that reason, but it would be a great way for you to kind of get into the text and then we come here together on Sundays and we talk about it. So maybe you might want to pick up one of these. There wasn't a thing to pre-do for today because we're handing this out today, but there is a section for you to take notes if you want, and there is a, a page that on page seven has the verses we'll be looking at today. But what makes the book of Acts unique is that it's the only book in the Bible that talks about the earliest origins and growth of Christianity, showing how the first Christians, all of them new Christians, lived as Christians. And it's interesting because the book of Acts, the author is Luke. And that might throw you for a curve because Luke is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. But then later, after you read John, the book of Acts, he's, that's book two. That's, he's the author also of that, And it's interesting because when you get to the later chapters of Acts, later in the story, some of the passages start to become what's called the we passages. He's talking about it. He's inserted himself into the action of the story. He's talking about parts that he was there. And so he says we. And it's interesting because that means that at least the dating of the book of Acts, if it was written by Luke and he's part of the story, He's part of the we of the story, which means that it was written during the lifetime of those who were in the story. Bible scholars think it was written about maybe the early 60s AD. It's about a good date for it. Because that's where the action ends in the last chapter, 28. 
it's about 64 AD, 62 AD maybe. And so it's, it, what, what Luke is doing is presenting something, and we'll get to it in a minute, but he has this, this, this preamble he gets to. But the question I want you to think through when we kind of read the first verses of Acts is, if you were certain, if you were convinced that Jesus really did bodily rise from the dead, are there, is there anything in your life that would be different? I mean, we all have these ambitions. We, none of us live according to our full convictions, but is there anything in your life that would be different than, than how you're living your life now? So let's read the first two verses, but you know, it's going to sound a little boring because they're kind of academic. They're kind of Luke introducing who he's writing to and all that. He says, in my former book, so he's talking there about the gospel of Luke, Theophilus, this is a common name in the first century AD. In my former book, Theophilus, so he's writing to somebody named Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. So here's what's interesting is that right away we know that Luke sees this as part of Acts. I mean, excuse me, Luke sees this as part of Luke. He sees Acts as part of Luke. So we should think through, okay, well, we go back to the preamble of Luke, and that's kind of the preamble of Acts, too. And so he says this in the preamble of Luke. He says in Acts chapter 1, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, same guy, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now here he says, most excellent Theophilus. He's, he's kind of a term that shows that well, we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but one thing we can know is that he was somebody who was socially honored, socially respected. And we, and we do know that he was intellectually sophisticated because the Greek in the Gospel of Luke that Luke wrote with and the Greek in the book of Acts is the most sophisticated Greek in the entire New Testament. It's really hard, it's really high level, it's really sophisticated, which shows that because he's writing to Theophilus, the most excellent Theophilus, he's bringing his A game. And he's writing something that he's bringing his A game, and here's the thing that you have to keep in mind, is that Luke is not at all thinking he's writing something that's going to be part of a Bible or part of a New Testament. That's not, that's not even on his mind. He's got a, one person in his mind we don't know much about him except that he's a smart guy. He's really well read, this guy Theophilus, in history and literature. And so Luke is trying to, well, he says here, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Luke is making a case of why Christianity is true. That's what he's doing in the Gospel of Luke, and that's what he's doing. That's what the, that's what the book of Acts is. When you read that, that's what he's doing. He's not just giving us interesting things to talk about. He's making the case to a really well-read, really smart guy, here's why Christianity is true, and he's talking specifically to him. And so he, he, that, that whole thing, the, the very first thing he goes to, is he goes back to what he talked about in the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, is the first thing he talks about in the story of Acts. And so he says in verse 3, after his suffering, so remember Jesus he was, was, was talking to his disciples, and he says after his suffering, after his crucifixion, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind. When you go back to the last chapter of Luke, we know, and in Luke's mind, it's all kind of connected. This is just kind of the next page. We know that the disciples were not quick to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. It's not like they said, okay, we were waiting, and no, here it is. They keep, they keep wait, what, what's going on here? They're not quick to believe. Aside from the empty tomb, which anybody could see, Jesus had to appear to them over and over repeatedly to convince them, to give them many convincing proofs that they weren't seeing a, a vision. They weren't seeing a hallucination. It wasn't some trick. This really was Jesus they saw crucified, had been resurrected from the dead. Not just resuscitated, but there's, he's got this body that's not going to die. It's a little bit different. He's got this body that's not going to ever be sick. It's got this eternal body. And so he's convincing them by appearing over and over. And so when you read the last chapter of Luke, we read of Jesus having long conversations with groups of disciples at the same time. When you go back to Acts chapter 24, we read of Jesus actually taking fish that they had just caught and cooking it and eating it with them as a meal, together as a group, eating fish. We see Jesus inviting them to touch his flesh and bones. And he says, see, I've got flesh and bones. I'm not a ghost. We, we, we see Jesus having to prove himself over and over in different situations, giving many convincing proofs. Put yourself in the story. If you were there and you saw Jesus crucified and now he's appearing to you as a resurrected body, what evidence would you require to believe that it really was a bodily resurrection. This really was Jesus. You weren't, you weren't on drugs. You weren't having a hallucination. It's not a fever dream. This really is Jesus. What evidence would you require to believe? I mean, be convinced 100%. Well, whatever that is for you, they're the same way. And it took them a while. It kind of took several appearances. It took time. And he says a period of 40 days <laughs> to be convinced. But they were absolutely convinced. We know that historically. They were convinced. There's an interesting issue of National Geographic March of 2012, and they did a whole issue on the journey of the apostles. Just so how, how did Christianity come onto the scene? And it's really interesting because, you know, it's National Geographic. It's not written from the standpoint of faith in Christianity at all. Uh, none of the historians that they cite as experts are believers in Christianity which is interesting when you never talk to a believer, but that's, that's okay. Because even from the standpoint of unbelief, they make a really interesting statement that I'm going to read right here. They say in this issue, March 2012, National Geographic says, the apostles suffered often gruesomely for spreading their radical views. The 12 Jews preached their new faith across thousands of miles in the first century A.D., changing history. Now, that's a big Twinkie. That's a big statement to make. And the article, rest, you know, the rest of the article kind of goes on and talks about what happened. And one of the historians cited said it was the big bang in world history. It exploded on the scene so quick and changed history. And, you know, there's all the what. But what's interesting is they never ask the why. I mean, why? What was it about Jesus that drove the apostles to suffer gruesomely 
travel thousands of miles and suffer gruesomely and change history? What happened that convinced them to, to, to do that? Well, I, I think Luke told us. Verse 3, he said, after his suffering, after he crucified, was crucified, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So many convincing proofs over 40 days. That's why what they said happened. That's why they traveled thousands of miles in their new radical faith, suffering gruesomely and changed history. But it wasn't really the resurrection that was the it. The resurrection wasn't the it. It was the proof of the it. But the it was the kingdom of God. See, to understand it from the apostles' point of view, this person that they had spent three years with, the kindest person they knew, this person of incredible humility, this person, the, 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 the more, most morally good person they knew, the most loving person they knew, the person that would serve them, the person who was so wise, it turns out he really is the king. The kingdom of God means that God is king, that Jesus is king, and if he's king, then his kingdom is really coming. That is incredibly good news. That means the best person we've ever known is in charge, and he's going to bring his kingdom. He's going to free us from the slavery, to free us from the injustice, to free us from the thorns and thistles and dust and death of this Genesis 3 world. That really is going to happen. He really is the true and forever king now, and he is now building his kingdom, and he's going to bring his kingdom and renew renew a new humanity by their own resurrection and renew this earth by a resurrection. We're going to talk more about that when we get to chapter 3. But what it meant was that the resurrection was proof that the kingdom of God is real. Jesus is king and he's bringing his kingdom. Amen. So I love the third service. It's always the best people. <laughs> That's why they were so passionate. That's why they knew it was worth it to suffer gruesomely. That's why they traveled thousands of miles, and that's why they changed history. So Luke writes in the next verse, verse four, he says, on one occasion, one of these occasions that he's appearing and giving them many convincing proofs over 40 days, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, again, he's just having a meal with them, he said to them in verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That Jesus is saying that, that you are my witnesses to the ends of the earth. This is what's going to happen. Now Jesus said this, what, 30-something A.D. Luke is writing this 30 years later, 60-something A.D. in the first century. You know what's interesting is that right now you and I wouldn't even be here today talking about any of this unless that happened. 
It's kind of amazing that it actually happened today everywhere in the globe. And Christianity is growing further, growing fastest in Africa, South America, Asia. It's already had years and centuries in North America and Europe, but it's growing faster outside that area. But everywhere in the world, Christianity is by far the largest multi-ethnic human movement in history. Still growing, still the biggest. That's not proof. That's not any historical proof that the resurrection really happened. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying it is. But it's interesting that it happened. Because, see, if it didn't happen, we would have reason to think, well, another fizzle out, somebody else claimed something, and it didn't happen, it wasn't true. But it happened. It's interesting because... For all these generations, the apostles were enabled by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, and they all generations passed down through other generations of believers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to all the way to the ends of the earth. It actually happened, and it's something we would have expected to happen if Jesus had risen from the dead and said it. We would expect it to happen, and it has. Now, again, I'm not saying that's historical proof that he rose from the dead, but it has happened, and we would expect it to happen. And I think it's a sign that Jesus really is enthroned, and he really is building his kingdom, and he really is going to bring his kingdom and bring a new, build a new humanity through resurrection and, and restore this earth through resurrection. It's really happening. It's already begun, and Jesus' resurrected body is the first of it. It's happening. We're in that story. And it's not proof, but it's a sign that the kingdom of God really is being built and and happening right now. Right now, right now. That's what your life, that's the story of your life, whether you realize it or not. Jesus is building his kingdom. In all of history, Jesus is building his kingdom. It all stands or falls, of course, on the resurrection, whether or not it really happened. Christianity stands or falls on that, nothing else. Only that is the main issue. If it happened, it's true. If it didn't, it's not. Molly Worthen is a history professor. I talked about her a couple months ago. She's got her PhD from Yale, and she's a history professor in American religion at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And, you know, she's been a contributing writer to, she's been an opinion writer in the New York Times and Slate. She's written books. And her shtick is she's been writing things as a history professor in American religion. She's been talking kind of about the, you know, the ways American Christianity is kind of cringeworthy, embarrassing, contradictory, kind of the problems. And she's not been unfair. She's been fair, but it's been really kind of painful as a Christian, especially as a pastor, to read some of the stuff she's written because it's kind of embarrassing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a part of that group. I don't want to be identified with them. It's kind of the contradictions, the cringeworthiness, the, the problems. And that's kind of been her thing, but then it surprised everyone when a year ago, last August, August 2022, she actually became a Christian, a professing Christian herself. She was interviewed on a podcast back in May called Gospel Bound. It's an interesting podcast. So Gospel Bound in May, Molly Worthen, if you want to listen to it yourself. It's an hour and a half interview. It's really fascinating. But in it, she, she talks about, as a historian, she started to investigate the historical reliability of the resurrection, historically speaking. And so here's what she says in the interview. I'm just, I just wrote it down. She says, I felt really personally indicted as a historian. 
PhD from Yale, history professor at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I felt indicted as a historian. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. I mean, that's the it. It stands or falls on the resurrection. And I could agree to struggle with all the other questions. Like, they're really important for sure. So she's saying, you know, yeah, all the things I wrote about that are kind of cringeworthy, kind of contradictory, embarrassing about American Christianity, things that happen in mega churches that are not awesome, all the questions we have when we read the Old Testament, all the ifs about that, and all the things that make us sort of hesitant. Yeah, those are, those are things to talk about. They're, they're not things to ignore. But she says they're not the main thing. They're not even the it. And so she goes on and she says, Christianity makes this singular historical claim and that that is everything, the resurrection. And so I found myself kind of creeping toward, I was doing all this investigation, I was creeping toward this point where I was, I could see the trajectory where it was going. I was going to be more than 51% persuaded at some point that the Christian account of the resurrection is the best answer we have. I could tell it was happening because I could tell I was starting as an historian to say, yeah, this, I think it really happened. And so she says, and if that's true, I have to change my working hypothesis of the universe. I mean, that's kind of a big statement, right? So she says, and so I went from praying basically simply for God to show himself to me to just seeing what it was like to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior. Here's what's interesting. Is she, she's involved in one of the mega churches in Chapel Hill that she kind of wrote a critical thing about. And she kind of said, well, you know, if the resurrection's true, I got to get involved somewhere. And I, I like the people here and I like this church. It's a mega church like the crossing. And there's things about it I don't love, she says, but... If the resurrection is true, I belong somewhere, and this is as good a place as any. And so she's, that's where she's involved. It's, I don't know. You know. I don't know what's hanging you up. Maybe it is some of the cultural stuff. I mean, it is embarrassing, and I, 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 I get embarrassed. You know, Stuff Christians say, stuff Christians do, especially now. I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want to be a social. I don't want to identify with that. I, I, there's, there's some things that make me not want to, but that's a trick. That's a smokescreen. She realized that's not even the it. The it is whether or not the resurrection happened. I don't know where you are and whether or not you believe the resurrection happened. But my guess is you might be somewhat like her, over 51%, maybe 60%, maybe 70%. You're thinking, you know what? When I look at the claims, of the, when I read the Bible and I read these people and I read their testimony and they don't sound like evil people, they don't sound like they're lying, they sound really convinced and it really does explain the big bang in world history, I can't think of a better explanation and there is the empty tomb and I can't think of anything better than the fact that it really happened. The only reason I have a hard time believing it is the implications. I have to change my whole working hypothesis of the universe. But if it happened, it happened. And maybe you're at a certain percentage over the hump and what's interesting is a lot of times we have, they say, 30% doubt, and we let the, the lesser doubt run our lives, determine what we're going to do, what we're going to say, rather than the greater belief. Now, why not let the greater belief? That's what she said. Why not, why not just say to Jesus, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior? I got an email two weeks ago from somebody in our church. I got permission from her to share parts of her email. She says, I come to the crossing for church on Sundays. 
I was at the service you led on 6-11-23. In effort to make a long story short, I had been looking for God since about October 2022. I had been reading the Bible, going to church, etc., etc. I'm 38, and I had gone my entire life not believing in him and not really looking for him or wanting to look for him. So fast forward, leading up to 6 23 I was like 70%, just to kind of talk like we're talking about now, I was like 70% sure I now believed in God, but I just could not make it the rest of the way. I was beginning to think that it just wasn't going to happen for me for whatever reason. It was like the last five minutes of your sermon, kind of like where we are now. It was like the last five minutes of your sermon and you asked something to the effect of, What's stopping you from just saying right now, Jesus, I believe you are my savior. It was something to that effect, she said. It was actually, Jesus, you are my Lord and my savior. And so she goes on and she says, so I said it in my head. And that was the first time I had said anything like that and admitted it to myself. By me doing that, it awakened something inside me that wasn't before. She talks about, went on to talk about her faith and where she is. Now, again, I don't know where you are, but maybe you're at a percentage of more you believe than you doubt that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And maybe the first thing in your life that would change, maybe the first thing you would do differently is just to say that to Jesus. Jesus, you are my Savior and my Lord. So I'm just going to give you a chance if you want, only if you want, no manipulation here, just if you want silently to pray to Jesus, I'm going to lead a time and you can just say it. Let's pray. If this is your desire, just right now, say to Jesus in your mind, in your heart, Jesus, you are my Lord and my Savior. Amen.